Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Strange World, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I once sang a perfect multi-part harmony with a herd of reindeer while lost in the woods, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week, I'm a regular old human in an ape's world, desperately trying to cling to the vines of knowledge in the vast jungle of animation studies. Thankfully, I'm joined by a cell-shaded silverback who knows the terrain like the back of his hand. Sam, this is one of my wildest intros for you ever. (laughs) You're a cell-shaded silverback who knows the terrain like the back of his hand, who can show me the ropes and have me skating down tree branches in no time. I am, of course, talking about Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, I don't know what happened with the intro this morning. <laughs> I've lost my mind. Yeah, I think at some point, like right at the end of the show, we need to um, make a big list of, of all the characters that I've been in the intros for these and see which is most like me, because I think Kerchak might be uh, the least like me out of any of them. <laughs> I was just trying to get across, you're the gorilla, you're the learned gorilla in the jungle, you know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, I okay. absolutely, as ever, have no clue. Yeah, I cannot believe we're nearly at the end of the Renaissance. Like, I know we started this many, many months ago because we took breaks for various reasons and we did a bunch of bonus episodes, but I still feel a bit sad. We've got this episode and we've got Fantasia 2000 next week, and then that is it for the Renaissance. We're on to a new era from there. Yeah, some would say this is the end of the Renaissance and Fantasia 2000 doesn't count, but to them I say, fie, a pox on thee, I've made the decision, (laughs) and it's Fantasia 2000. That's where it ends. We'll talk about it next week. Okay. Yeah, I'm intrigued because you you call the shots on this stuff. I let you steer the direction of where the eras begin, where they end, what we're doing when. So I'm, I'm fascinated to see why we're ending on Fantasia 2000. But this is kind of the last big one of this era, which we've discussed this before, but this is in my personal Disney wilderness years. I actually don't know if I'd ever seen this before until I watched it for this podcast. My main connection to Tarzan was I had the Game Boy Color game, which we'll probably talk to when we get to Lasting Legacy, but I had, it was like a a side-scrolling platform game, you'd play as Kid Tarzan, as Kid Turk, and then as Adult Tarzan, swinging around, collecting bananas, climbing up vines and stuff, I played that for hours on end, don't know if I actually ever saw the film, so... (laughs) You were surprised that there was more than 16 bits on screen. Yeah, I was like, who knew Tarzan looked this good? And I'm not going to put any suspense into this. This film is amazing. This film (laughs) is so good. I'm really excited to get into it. But before we do... 
for this episode, we are welcoming in a British woman who will change everything full of curiosity about the world of Tarzan, and with her own PhD in Phil Collins. I've made that up. She doesn't have a PhD, but she loves some Phil Collins. She is a film critic, a regular on BBC Radio 5 Live, the host of the Christopher Nolan-centric Nolan Me, Nolan You podcast, excellent name. Strong. Formerly the editor of Zavi Magazine, and now the entertainment editor of Games Radar slash basically Total Film Online. Yes, she's my direct rival to Empire Magazine, but if I've learned anything from this film, it's that two worlds can become one family. So a huge welcome to the pod, a hand across the divide, to Emily Murray. Hello. Hello, hello. How can you say, like, two worlds, one family, <laughs> without singing it? I actually can't say those words. He's only heard the song once, as we've established. Once is enough, though. Oh my God, that's going to be in my brain forever. And you singing it, I can just see in my mind's eye two hands coming together yes. and touching in the middle of the screen. Yeah, what a banger. Yeah, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. And just funny that you've ended up coming on the week after Rihanna, who I you know. ended up on Radio 5 Live with a lot. Uh, yes. Has she teed you up for the madness that we're about to get into for the next couple of hours? <laughs> she has, she has. And I thought so Rihanna's to blame for me to pick Tarzan as well, because I obviously was hanging out with you on like a very fancy press trip. And I think I was on 5 Live the week before talking about best Disney soundtracks. And I said Tarzan because... It's my favourite. And Rihanna laughed me out of the room. She did not <laughs> She did not believe me, as did presenter Nahal, who presents our five live show. And I just got very upset. <laughs> but there wasn't like enough love for Tarzan, so I felt like I had to defend it in that moment. And I'm here now defending it again. <laughs> yes, I will dig it up because I saw I found the clip online of you saying to Rihanna and Nahal that I think you said you the best Disney songs ever are the yeah. songs from Tarzan and they were flabbergasted, flabbergasted. and you doubled down I respect it <laughs> uh, so we'll put that out on Twitter for anyone who hasn't seen that <laughs> clip uh, and as you said we met last year on a fancy press trip for Jurassic World Dominion mm. we both shot videos where we pretended we were being chased by raptors in Malta Yeah. and I asked you on that trip I was like oh we've got to get you on Disneyversity what do you want to do and your answer was two part first up was have you done Lady in the Tramp already? And I was like, we've done Lady in the That's Tramp. That's an early one, yeah. <laughs> and instantly you were like, is anyone doing Tarzan? <laughs> so let's get into Lady in the Tramp first, because you have a Lady in the Tramp hoodie on I right do. now. I can I see do. it. You love Lady in the Tramp. I love that you love Lady in the Tramp. It is such a banger. Why do you love that film? So I'm like really obsessed with this film to like a new level. Like it's actually out of control. <laughs> Basically, it's the first time I ever saw in the cinema. My parents took me to go see, like, a re-release. So my first actual Disney big screen was one of the old ones, which I think that's so lovely, because I think a lot of people would have been, like, Lion King or maybe even Tarzan. But for me, it was um, Lady and a Tramp. I don't know the origin story of why they took me to go see Lady and a Tramp when I was three years old, or, like, why I decided to, like, base my personality around this film. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, yeah, I brought this out for you. For Obviously, people can't see, but I got given, like... So I've had this since I was three. It's a little lady. Oh. And there's a tramp as well, but ladies the best. Yes. Little lady beanbag sounding yeah. plush. Pink bow in the ear. Yes, I did. A, I, I put a little bow on her. because <laughs> <laughs> When I was probably like six and it's still there. Amazing. My fiance, Lydia, when I first started going out with her at uni, she had one of those, the exact <gasps> one in her oh halls God. at uni. So... 
there we go. That triggered some serious flashbacks for me. <laughs> yeah, but these were like the toys I got, I think, after I saw Lady and Tramp for the first time. And then, although my boyfriend's kind of ruined it now because he says they look like they've sort of dabbled a bit in drugs because they're so <laughs> old. <laughs> they've maybe seen better days. They look like they've been hanging around with Peg a bit too much. Yeah, my mum's sewn them up. So then now, basically, anyone who knows me buys me, like, Lady and a Tramp stuff. I counted them this one. I think I've got, like, 28 Lady and a Tramp. It's, honestly, it's, like, out Plushies of Plushies or just Plushies, general yeah. things? Oh, And then I've God. got a huge one. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! Kaiju lady has entered the chat. <laughs> Bigger than an actual yeah. dog. <laughs> she's, obviously, people can't see, but she's, like, three times the size of an actual dog. She's huge. <laughs> it's kind of just, like taken over my life in a weird yes. way i think basically people know that i like lady and tramp so they buy me loads of lady and tramp stuff and obviously i buy my own stuff mostly plushies i like the lounge fly lady and tramp bags they're really cute every time i have to move it's like two dedicated boxes <laughs> just of lady and tramp plushies just for lady and tramp i love that that was a big one for you because again it was one that i think i only really properly watched when we were doing this and you think oh it's a it's a cute one it's a fun one it is a gorgeous film if you've not yeah. listened to that episode that we did or if you've not seen the film go back and watch it it is stunning like super widescreen frames so detailed and beautiful and and gorgeous and just charming as anything yeah baby lady is on baby lady yeah another level to any other <laughs> sort of disney character in the cuteness ranks so that's lady in the tramp but your second pick immediately was tarzan. was tarzan yeah so talk us through your tarzan love so when i was a kid i wasn't very like into princesses or any of that so i i love stuff like cinderella you know but i was a trash dog falling in love over spaghetti or jungle man <laughs> kind of child like I didn't yeah. I never dressed up as a princess I think I used to dress up as Goofy or something you know like <laughs> I just that's what I did and I think well it's Phil Collins like I just love dad rock my dad's like a huge he really likes Genesis and stuff I think I'm like secretly a 40 year old man because I just love dad rock and to the point that like when I was being born my dad made sure a certain song by the band U2 was playing so I literally was born to sort of dad rock era so I just love Phil Collins. But I think recently re-watching it, I forgot just how good everything else surrounding it was. But I just remember being really taken, like as a child, by like the jungle, the animals, and just that story. Yeah, it's something quite primal about obviously connecting back to nature. And obviously I just connected to it a lot as a kid. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask, do you just generally like Phil Collins? Because you think these are <laughs> the best Disney songs. But when I was reading, like all the reviews for this movie say like, Oh yeah, and Phil Collins actually wrote some good songs for once in his damn life. <laughs> I think Phil Collins was not very cool in the night. Well, he wasn't very cool for a long time. Yeah. I think there's a bit of a Collins, a bit of a Collinsance happening these days. And <laughs> um, there's probably a better word for it than that. But back then, it was like, oh yeah, Phil Collins absolutely sucks. Everyone hates Phil Collins. Apart from these Tarzan songs, these are actually <laughs> really good. Give him an Oscar. It's like no. Phil Collins has always been class. Yeah, You just didn't realise it till you heard his songs in a Disney movie. Yeah. I mean, his best songs probably are the Tarzan songs. It's quite possible, but... Yeah, they had some bangers. But um, yeah, I always preferred the more animal-based movies. I do love stuff like Cinderella, but... A lot of mice in that film, a surprising amount of mouse That's antics. True. So... Yeah, are there any other Disney films that you've maybe seen at any point in your life, really, not as a kid, where you've really connected to it, where you have a strong connection to any other Disney films these days? 
I really like Zootropolis. Again, another yes. kind of base one, but right. I like the message of that movie about, you know, you can try everything, be anything. I loved that message. As a kid, I really liked Little Mermaid. So I'm very excited because the live action film is coming out soon. I'm really excited to see that. And Lion King as well was like a big one. So I feel like my sister was like the Lion King kid and I was like the Lady and Tramp kid. So she had like the Nala plushies and stuff and I was a spare of my mountain off <laughs> Lady and Tramp dogs. <laughs> I'm envisioning rooms upon rooms of Disney plushies <laughs> all piling up all across yeah. different eras. And um, Dumbo was another classic that I loved. My yes. parents very much like showing me, I think, the old school Disney films. Amazing. Excellent work. Well, that is enough from us. We're all sat down, the register's complete, and it's time for class to begin. And this time, we're swinging into action with 1999's Tarzan. Okay then, Sam, can you tee us up with the plot for Tarzan? What is the story of this movie? So, orphaned in the jungle as a baby and raised by gorillas. This feels silly, by the way, because it's Tarzan. (laughs) Everybody knows who Tarzan is, but okay. (laughs) Orphaned in the jungle as a baby and raised by gorillas, if you can believe that. Tarzan grows to thrive as a protector of his family, but still feels like he doesn't quite belong. When he meets other humans for the first time and falls for a young woman named Jane, Tarzan has to choose between two worlds, parenthesis, one family, close brackets, and save the apes from the villainous hunter, Clayton. Okay, there we go. That is the plot of this particular version of Tarzan. I don't really know the wider Tarzan story. We'll get into that in Discarded. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I I don't massively trust Victorian era adventure (laughs) stories. A A lot of tropes. Uh, of, of a certain kind going on. We will talk about it, yeah. So speaking of that, this is based on an Edgar Rice Burroughs story. He was like a, an early adventure pulp writer. He wrote a lot of early science fiction as well as the Tarzan stories. How long was Tarzan on Disney's radar as something that they could adapt one day? You know, this is a weird one, actually, because I'm not sure if Walt Disney ever considered Tarzan at the time. Tarzan was a relatively new property, there'd been some big live-action movies, but I don't think it was ever on the docket for them to adapt until the 1990s. But, while they were making the movie, a letter was unearthed from 1936 in which Edgar Rice Burroughs suggests that the perfect adaptation of Tarzan might be a feature-length animated film, something which, in 1936, did not even exist. Like, Snow White hadn't come out yet. That wasn't a thing. But he'd seen some other Disney cartoons. He foresaw a prophecy of a man named (laughs) Phil Collins. And he thought the ultimate version of this story features the music of Phil Collins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he said, it should be a cartoon and the cartoon must be good. It must approximate Disney excellence. I've given it a great deal of thought and I've come to the conclusion that a great deal of humour must be injected into it. If it is to have popular appeal, I believe that everything should be made to look as natural as possible. And if they can get the drummer from Genesis to do the music, that would be ideal. And that that last bit wasn't true. But it does kind of make sense because there had been live action versions of Tarzan. Burroughs wasn't totally happy with them. The kind of superhumanly athletic and agile Tarzan of the novels wasn't really captured in live action performances. And they couldn't really capture the relationship between him and the animals either, because real gorillas don't talk, and they weren't really making an attempt to uh, to fake that in these movies. So, for lots of reasons, it kind of makes sense that Tarzan should be an animated movie. But this was the first animated Tarzan movie. There'd been lots of live-action versions. 
This was the first animated one, unless you count the 1975 pornographic French film Tarzoon, Shame of the Jungle. Ooh. <laughs> Don't want to delve into that one. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's for another podcast <laughs> to, to delve into. That's not official Disney canon. So let's talk about the Phil Collins factor. Emily, can you tee up? Where is Phil Collins in his career at this point? What is happening in the world of Phil Collins? How much does this... It, this sounds to me as somebody who doesn't know a huge amount of Phil Collins. It sounds <laughs> extremely Phil Collins-y. Yeah. Is this very much in his wheelhouse, the sort of music that he's making here? I think so. The man's all about drums. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I actually don't know why he chose to do Tarzan. I'm going to guess it's something to do with Lily Collins, his daughter, aka Emily in Paris. Because she'd have been like eight at this time. Wait, hang on, hang on. The actor who plays Emily in Paris is Phil, is Collins... Phil Collins' daughter. Daughter. Yeah. I don't even watch that show. I don't know why that's <laughs> blowing my mind, but it, that stopped me in my tracks. If I have a feeling he was like, yes, I'll do Tarzan for my daughter because he wanted to make like a kid's film. And then You'll Be in My Heart, I believe, is the lullaby that he wrote for Lily Collins, which oh. then made its way to Tarzan. So it kind of tracks that he. Yeah, Tarzan was sort of a film that would suit his style. Also, why not do a Disney film? But I yeah. do like the idea that the actress who now plays Emily in Paris might have been responsible for Phil Collins making this banging soundtrack. <laughs> and Sam, can you corroborate that? So, uh, this feels like it's very much in the footsteps of them getting Elton John to do mm. the songs for The Lion King. Let's get a big pop name to do a suite of songs. Do you know what happened in them kind of approaching Phil Collins to do this? Well, it was brokered by Chris Montan, who was like the Disney music executive at that time. Uh, it was his idea. And yeah, I don't know loads of details about it, but Collins was mad up for it. Collins was so up for it that he sang all of the songs in yeah. English, French, German, Italian and Spanish. <laughs> wow. And there's footage of this on the DVD and it's like really funny in a way that I can't describe. Like I don't know why that would be funny because they like mix it in so he goes from like English to French to Spanish to German. I don't know why that should be funny but it is. And also there's like a little featurette about him recording the pop version of the Trash in the Camp song with NSYNC. NSYNC, yeah. Also hilarious. <laughs> what? There's no <laughs> lyrics in that song. Yeah, yeah, NSYNC yeah. doing their doo 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 and you've, so you've got like baby Justin Timberlake saying yeah man we always wanted to work with Phil Collins like, <laughs> when they say you can get a chance to work with Phil Collins you take it man it's, okay yeah sure Justin <laughs> I bet but it, it's also interesting that this isn't a musical right this was decided mm. early on like we're going to get Phil Collins in and do the songs but the characters aren't going to be singing the songs instead we're going to have the voice of Phil Collins like operating as the voice of God throughout this entire <laughs> film which gives it a very Collinsy texture. And that was the decision of Kevin Lima, one of the directors, the man who gave us the great American musical, A Goofy Movie. He decided that he didn't want this to be a musical. He said, I just couldn't see this half-naked man sitting on a branch breaking out in song. I thought it would be ridiculous. It would, to be fair. Yeah, maybe he was right. So let's talk about the directors here. Because, as you say, Kevin Lima, he directed a Goofy movie, which we did a bonus episode on. So if you've not listened to that, go back and listen to us talk about that film with Griffin Newman. But he is teaming up with Chris Buck, who is another big name. He's a big name in Disney still now. He was a director on Frozen and Frozen 2. So he's going to be around in the studio for a while. Mm. What was the point at which Disney lets these guys loose on a feature together? Well, the original idea, and I think the reason why Kevin Lima was approached first, is that it was a Katzenberg idea. And he 
wanted the TV division to make this. He wanted to do it kind of on the cheap with the less experienced animators and Lima wasn't sure about it. He didn't think they could do it justice with that team and with that budget and with that level of tech. But then after Katzenberg resigned, Eisner bumped it to the feature division, kept Lima on as director and Lima got Chris Buck involved because they were mates basically. I mean, Chris nice. Buck wasn't nobody. He'd worked on some of these movies. He animated some of the sidekicks on uh, Pocahontas, for example. He'd been working his way up for a while, and I guess he was ready for it. But yeah, it was a team of buddies, a couple of mates, making a Tarzan movie. And rather than going, we're going to make it cheap, we're going to make it for TV, they went the opposite end of the scale here, because the animation in this film is incredible, and I wasn't prepared for how <laughs> striking and interesting the animation was going to be in this film. It is such a visually dazzling movie. And to me, Sam, it feels like a big leap from everything else we've seen in this era. We've had this slow encroach of 3D animation in certain scenes or certain moments or certain characters. This film feels like it takes another leap in how they create kind of 3D environments, how they move the camera within 3D environments still with the layering that you get from the cap system and the principles of the multiplane camera going right back to Snow White. But you can also feel the camera moving much more fluidly in a 3D space. Was there any kind of particular technological step up here? Was it just a greater level of confidence in the technology they already had? Why does this film look so good? <laughs> Yeah, so they built a new kind of program specifically for this. It was this new program called Deep Canvas. And the idea is they would create fully 3D models of environments, like in exactly the same way that you would in a Pixar movie, for example. So in particular, all the trees in this movie are full 3D models. But then, and so of course, they can move the camera around in these environments like you would on a live action set. And then what they do is to really take it to the next level and make it fit with the 2D world and with the aesthetic of the rest of the film is they got people to kind of quote unquote paint the models digitally but manually so all of these 3d models were painted as if you were painting them with a paintbrush just digitally it wasn't like ai it wasn't computer generated it was the human touch you know to make it feel like the same guys who painted the flat backgrounds were painting these 3d trees as well so it's this 3d paint and this deep canvas effect that blends seamlessly with the rest of the picture it's a tool that's been developed for a specific storytelling purpose and it's such a good example of that of how new kinds of stories that they want to tell inspire the technology that they develop it's the same thing that like walt did back in the day like when they knew they wanted to make a feature-length film with human characters as in snow white they had developed the multiplane camera in order to make that possible in order to make that believable and here because you know you're going to have this guy who's swinging around through the trees would need to build technology that's going to allow us to do that and then that technology would keep it and, and use it over and over again so again what was the name of that tech deep canvas deep canvas Ooh. sounds like some kind of mysterious government operation <laughs> sting but it's not sting it's phil collins <laughs> wrong guy <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. I think that's our sign that we should get into talking about the film itself. Are we all ready to head to the jungle? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Let's go. So when I press play on this film, I had very little idea of what to expect going in. The thing that I definitely didn't expect 
was eight minutes of dialogue-free action, including dead parents, lots of animal action, and Phil Collins' gentle pop vibes overlaid (laughs) over the top of it all. It was such a curious mix, such a little microcosm of what I was in for for the rest of those 90 minutes. It's such an interesting, striking, confident opening to this Mm. film that on the one hand it's just trying to get you up to speed of here's why this baby is in the jungle here's why he doesn't have human parents anymore here's why he's been taken under the wing of this lovely gorilla mum and (laughs) phil collins is bringing the vibes bringing the drums all the way through (laughs) what an incredible opening to this film it's a great opening. Phil Collins goes hard from the off, right? The first thing you hear is his drums. Drums, <laughs> like, I that's know. It. That's the start of the movie. But I thought I've seen all these memes like online before. Disney saying, "Hey, to Phil Collins, like, hey pal, you know, we got a story about just a jungle man realizing who he is. Do you fancy doing a soundtrack?" But you know, it doesn't need to be too much. It's just a simple story. And then Phil, like, at the drums, like, with all the drums on fire. <laughs> so people are like, he goes too hard. I don't think he, I think he goes, like, the right level of hard. And it is from the opening, because I think the opening's like, you got this ship on fire. And I don't know why fire looks so good when it's animated, but it's, like, bright orange and these drums. And, you know, like, it is pretty extreme, epic story. So I think that's why you have to go hard on the drums with Phil Collins, you know, right from the start. <laughs> And it is a horrible opening in terms of, we don't even just have dead parents, we have a dead baby. Because, you know, Carla loses her child. Like, we know Disney love dead parents, that's just Disney. But I forgot how heartbreaking it was, her baby just being taken away from her. Yeah, you get those stakes in there straight away. It doesn't quite bear out in the movie itself, but it feels like, oh, okay, we're in a world where anything can happen, where anybody yeah. can die at any time, where a leopard can just rock up and, and eat your baby. Yeah, we'll have those stakes and... Is it undercut by the Phil Collins song? Because Ben, you were saying like very gentle vibes with the music. Yeah. But then we're talking about the very hard drums at the same time. I don't know. It's an odd one because I think with the score, like with some of the underlying music, he goes big on the drums. But it was a slightly strange mix for me in that really dark, dramatic stuff is happening that ordinarily would be soundtracked by a dun 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 <laughs> like there's a ship on fire and a leopard's coming but over the top of it it's like Phil Collins is singing like this <laughs> and so I was like this is it's an interesting mix of the darkness of what I'm seeing on screen and the general aura that this music is creating but it kind of works. I don't know why it, sh- it shouldn't, but it, it shouldn't. Does. No. I-, I feel like some of his singing is actually kind of epic and like declarative, and it's like welcome to this world. The way he's like a paradise untouched by man. It's like oh damn, that's pretty hard. <laughs> that's pretty cool. <laughs> oh, you're a paradise untouched by man. That's where you are. The movie starts. I think that's a pretty good way to open it. But then, yeah, it, it kind of dips into the the gentler stuff later on. The trailer for this movie, like the teaser trailer for this movie, was heavy on like this music and the dark pan you get through the Tarzan logo as well. Yeah, um, took up a lot of the trailer. When I saw this trailer in the cinema as a kid, it felt like okay, this is going to be quite a heavy duty Disney movie. This is like a a step up dramatically from. Hercules and and Mulan. Those were the exact thoughts that ran through my uh, six-year-old head. <laughs> yeah. Because right from the beginning, I think even that title card and the the crashing of the lightning and the like crash in on the wooden Tarzan logo immediately gives you this sense of like we this is going to be an all-out adventure movie. A yeah. 
step up action and excitement and thrills wise than we're used to from Disney at this point where even something that has like a big sort of adventure style epic story like The Lion King is still couched in I don't know this kind of warmth and this kind of glowiness and this element of safety in a Disney movie this one feels like the opening is going kids you're not safe in this movie but we're gonna take you on a thrilling ride with jaunty pop songs (laughs) something about that whole milieu that it creates at the start of the film uh, really sets it up and I think that comes through in the fact that we see Tarzan's dead parents they are not killed well they are killed off screen but (laughs) they're not held entirely off screen we see their legs we see bloody footprints we see the gun on the floor it's going in on this stuff in a more explicit way than earlier disney films would have when that leopard comes in for a big old scrap there is an intensity there's a speed to the movement there is just this extra frisson of danger to it all that then I think really sets you up for what the rest of the film is going to be doing. It's pretty incredible. It feels like the movie in general is skewing maybe a couple of years older than the last few. I guess Hunchback of Notre Dame as an outlier, but like so, like Lion King, Hercules, it feels like it's skewing a couple of years older in terms of its target audience, which doesn't sound like much, but with kids it can be. If you were a kid who grew up with The Lion King, who was like five when The Lion King came out and now you're nine... I think this is something that you would not feel lame about enjoying. I mean, maybe apart from the Phil Collins, I don't know. I don't... <laughs> but um, yeah, it doesn't feel like a movie that you should be embarrassed for going to see just because it's a Disney movie if you're a little bit older. The other thing that I think is interesting about this opening is that, as I said, it is wordless. We get no dialogue in this sequence. It's all told through the visuals through the Phil Collins music, yes, <laughs> through the action, that is where the story is set up. But it is basically then meaning that we don't hear human voices in this film. We don't hear his parents' voices. Then when we do hear people speaking English, what we're actually hearing is apes speaking ape, but we're kind of centred in that world. It creates its own internal logic early on of what we're hearing, because for the first half hour of this film, we're not going to see any other humans. We're not going to hear anybody actually speaking English. We're going to be centred in this world where, as an audience, we can understand them because we're in that group of apes, we're in the heart of the jungle, but nobody is actually speaking English. And I thought that was really smart. And I think that kind of brings us to Tarzan himself. We spend quite a bit of time with Tarzan, especially in the first half of the film, kind of taking him from a baby to a kid to an adult man in a way that combined with the leafy natural environments and this story of I don't know a dangerous world with a kid who is kind of cocky and confident and doesn't really see the true danger of what's happening it's like Bambi meets the Lion King (laughs) in the jungle there's a lot going on here but it really sets up Tarzan as a character do we like Tarzan do we think Tarzan's a cool dude Love Tarzan. He is a cool dude. <laughs> I think one of my favourite scenes is actually the Sullivan montage scene, which is sort of taking him from kid to adult. Everyone loves a montage, right? We all love a montage. And obviously it's like Sullivan 
one of the best Phil Collins songs. And I think also when it ends on the shot of Tarzan growing up and he sort of just stood there on a tree and it's like hairs billowing, you're like, yeah, you're cool. You're cool. <laughs> <laughs> when I was watching that sequence, I was struck for really, I think, the first time by... Uh, how kind of freaky adult Tarzan is because the, the freaky, kid yeah. is like yeah <laughs> the kid is fairly typical like appealing cutesy round Disney character Disney kid and then in, this time around when he grows up and you suddenly get this guy with this extremely pointy head basically is what <laughs> it is I was like man this guy he's a bit off putting almost I mean a part of that is is very deliberate like his body is strange his body is inhuman yeah he doesn't move like a human they actually designed what his musculature would look like under his skin. There's like diagrams of what Tarzan's muscles look like so that they could figure out how he would move and how he could move so that his movements, his inhuman movements would read realistically despite him being basically nude for the whole movie. Like (laughs) he can't just look like his body's twisting around freakishly because you can see his whole body. There needs to be muscle under there. But the head is is what gets me. His weird hair, his weird like kind of solid yeah. dreadlock things, but the, he's only got like six big like he's got six giant hairs. Is what Tarzan's got. <laughs> he does. But the animators were like, "Phew, we don't have to do all the individual hairs. We just have six yeah. big ones." Yeah, oh, that's fair play. I think it works because he has to be alluring, but also kind of not quite right like a bit off-putting yeah. so when jane meets him later on she sort of is a bit scared of him like we have to be i think a bit drawn in and scared all at once yeah he has to be both human and inhuman an ape man if you will but it is like what ben was talking about before the way that we spend a lot of this movie with tarzan with the apes speaking english to our ears but speaking ape kind of diegetically <laughs> in the world you get this like subtle anthropomorphic shift in this movie, but it's within the character of Tarzan more than it is within the apes. In our Lady and the Tramp episode, Lady and the Tramp, I talked about how the first however long of that movie, the first chunk of that movie, you are with Lady as a dog, and yeah. she looks and behaves like a dog, and it's quite a while before she actually speaks, and when she does, you see the designs of her and the other dogs like subtly shift to allow for that anthropomorphic expression. And with Tarzan, it's kind of the opposite. When he's cracking on with the apes, he kind of speaks like a human. He looks a bit more like a human. And then when he meets Jane for the first time, there's this sort of shift where he starts to speak like an ape because she's hearing him as what he actually sounds like. And he moves more ape-like as well. And, And the other characters like Turk moves more like a human in the scenes with just her and Tarzan and the other apes. And then when she interacts, like at the end of the Trash in the Camp scene with Jane, she looks more gorilla-like. Yeah, I think the physicality of Tarzan is so striking. The way that he moves, the fluidity of his movements is such a striking thing in this film. I texted you guys while I was watching this. You probably got a sense that I was really enjoying this film because I was messaging you (laughs) guys just like... The incredible tracking shots in this movie. If we were playing a drinking game where every time there was a jaw-dropping tracking shot, I would have been trashed 20 minutes into this film because not only is the film making an exciting spectacle of the jungle itself, but once Tarzan is starting to grow up, I mean, even when he's a kid and he's running around the trees and he's hanging off vines and swinging around and sliding down tree branches we feel that fluidity with him the camera is following not just the shape of the jungle but the shape of his movements through the jungle and that was so thrilling to watch and i think that level of fluid movement and the expressiveness of yes his freaky face he has a very pointy chin as an adult but it's a really expressive face and he can 
project all this emotion off it. He can be very inward and very confused, especially when he's talking with Jane. He can be more human-like in moments. He can be more ape-like in moments. I found it really endearing. I thought there was just so much going on expressively with this character that to compare it to Hercules, which I struggled with and I didn't feel a huge amount for that character. Sam is shaking his head. I, I can't <laughs> open these old wounds again. Tarzan really got me on side. I really bought into that. And I, I thought it was interesting because of the way that he moves. Something we talked about with Hercules was that it is, as a film, really co-opting these superhero narratives. It's telling a Superman story and it's telling the story of Hercules as the superhero of his day. I kind of felt like they did a similar thing with Tarzan. They present him with this kind of superhuman ability to move and to traverse the jungle, but with this extra level of, I don't know, warmth to him that, that for me, brought me closer in to that character than I was able to get myself with Hercules. Yeah, no, I agree. Because I was always wondering why I connected with Tarzan like as a child and just like growing up because he is like a jungle man. I've never been to a jungle. I mean, I'd like to. <laughs> like, I think we all kind of want to let loose in a jungle one day. But I feel like the emphasis on like he's basically wants to just be accepted, which is something that everyone can connect with. And then also the idea of a found family in a way, which is something I've been thinking a lot about recently because obviously Star Wars, The Mandalorian, about like how your family is not just by blood, it's who you connect with. I think Tarzan's story is something that we all can connect with. So even though we're not jungle men, the way that it sort of characterised him, and yeah, you're right, I think in terms of his face, like all those expressions come through. There's just sort of an empathy there, that sort of a natural connection. Like he's relatable. It feels weird saying Tarzan's relatable, but I relate to him. And it really struck me in this sequence with Kid Tarzan, where we're coming off the back of Mulan, and there's a lot of Mulan where it's like, what is my identity? Where do I fit? Who do I sit with? What do I see when I look at my reflection? That was going all the way through that film. And here we get, an, I'm going to say, even more impactful version of that, where Kid Tarzan is looking at his own reflection in the water and he has like a splash of mud over one side of his face and we had that scene in Mulan where she kind of wipes half the makeup off and she sees half and half of her face but this had a similar element of yeah Tarzan with half of his face covered in mud but he looks at his reflection and he just like pounds the water he he hates what he sees there's an anger and a sadness and a frustration to that that was really powerful. I thought with Mulan, a lot of that is internalised. It, it doesn't come out in these big acts of anger or emotion in a way that's very fitting for that story and for that world. But with Tarzan, it comes out in this anger that was so sad to behold, to see this kid basically punching his own reflection because he just doesn't know who he's supposed to be. I think that is a really impactful sequence early on and really gets you on side with this journey for Tarzan of where should he be, who should he be with, and the very Lion King-esque sequence where the gorillas tempt him to go and get a hair from the <laughs> elephant. It's this reckless task that it feels like he has to do to kind of prove himself, and he does that because he wants to be accepted. He, he wants to be one of them, but they leave him behind, and I don't know, it really conjures all these emotions from him as a kid that then carry through into his adult self. It's there right up until the end where he comes out wearing that suit, which oh, is, yeah. is sad. That's a sad mm. scene. It's not a scene of self-actualization. It's not a scene of, like, 
this is me, this is exactly who I am, I'm coming out triumphantly because I've finally achieved what I want, I've finally kind of been able to take on the identity that I think belongs to me. It's sad, it's tragic, it's like, no, you are you are of two worlds and you're trying to force yourself into this shape, you're trying to force yourself into this suit and be what you think you should be because you have met these humans and you've now seen what your parents look like and you want to look like them. And that's not what you are, you are of both worlds. And uh, we'll talk more about the ending at the ending, but I think we'll reach this compromise place that feels very real. Like, it's not always about two worlds and and having to choose one or the other. Sometimes it's about (laughs) one family. Uh, (laughs) But it is, if you you compare it, a lot of Disney movies are about two worlds, one family in a way, right? Like, he's a bloke and you're a little mermaid. Two worlds, one family. (laughs) Or like... You're a fox, but your best mate's a dog, yeah. Two words, you know what I mean? Like they've, told, they've told this story a lot, but in those examples, it is resolved with them moving into one or the other world. Like in The Fox and the Hound, Todd remains in the wood, and, and Copper goes off to be a hunting dog. In The Little Mermaid, she becomes a human, she decisively moves into Eric's world. And what we have at the end of Tarzan is is more of a compromise. Like, his identity is somewhere in between, in the middle of that Venn diagram. The human world meets the ape world in the version of Tarzan's life that we end this movie with. So in terms of that ape world then, I think that's part of the journey of this film, is the different voices we get from the ape community. So we have... Carla, who is basically Tarzan's mum, who is very loving and warm and as you say, Emily, she has lost a baby at the start of this movie that is absolutely heartbreaking and then she finds a new family in discovering baby Tarzan crying in the treehouse. Then you have Turk, who is Tarzan's mate, but not a very good mate. She's one of the ones who leaves him behind and she's a bit embarrassed of him but she kind of feels sorry for him. She's got a really fun personality but they don't shy away from the fact that she is not a ride or die for Tarzan. She, you know, is a bit of a fair weather friend. And then you have Kerchak who is the big scary ape who aside from Clayton and the humans, is sort of the antagonist of the movie. He is the one who, at the beginning, says, you will never be an ape, you will never be one of us. And in his final throes before he dies, he's the one who says, I was wrong. You you are an ape, you are the leader of us. And it's his journey to kind of accepting Tarzan that then, through the course of the film, you have all these different ape voices. You have this caring, protecting mother. You have a friend, but who's also like, you're different and we can never really be the same. You have this big, horrible man going, you're never going to be one of us. Stop trying. And that adds to this sense of confusion. What do you guys feel towards the apes in the film and the way that they inhabit and create this jungle environment. I really love Carla. I think she's probably my favourite ape. Although Turk has the best hair. <laughs> it's very like 90s Bart Simpson style. Yeah. She's got too much gel in that hair. <laughs> like She needs to chill out there. I feel like mentally connected with Carla. I think because also to go back to the opening, it's from her perspective. Like she comes across a human camp and she comes across as human baby. She doesn't know what to do with a human baby. I wouldn't know what to do with a human baby if I found one, you know, just like in a camp. Just sort of feel instantly connected to her because she is so warm and tender. Like you just want, I just want a hug from her, I think. But I think because it starts with her perspective, I think that sort of helps us see the world from her eyes as well. And like we see Tarzan through her eyes. You said about when he puts on his dad's old suit. Carla's a bit taken aback because we are as well. So I think it helps having her perspective. And also Glenn Close does such a great job 
off voicing that character so warm. How close was this to her doing the live action 101 Dalmatians? Was this post 101 Dalmatians, Sam? Yes, yeah, it was post the first one, yeah. Two very different Disney characters. Yeah, very different. The only actor in this movie who really gets to sing. Rosie O'Donnell kind of gets to <laughs> scat a little bit, but but she gets to sing like the first verse of You'll Be In My Heart. She has access to the emotive power yeah. of the Disney musical. That song very much calls back to Baby Mine from Dumbo. It yeah, feels like the, yeah. the modern iteration of that. And yeah, she's a figure like Mrs. Jumbo. She cares for this child who is an outcast. And to an extent that makes her an outcast herself, like her relationship with Kerchak, we don't see loads of it, but that has clearly been tested by this situation. But she doesn't care. She gives her all to raising this kid. She is, yeah, amazing. I have to say, when I watched the second half of this film, I had to watch it in two parts. I'd been out, I'd had a few drinks, I'd had a couple of margaritas, <laughs> I'd had a couple of Negronis, I came back, and I, we'll get to talking about the end of the film, but the emotional power of the film really started to get to me. I don't know whether that was the film itself, I don't know if the fact that I'd had a few drinks, and it was a, the end of a busy week, played something into that. But that moment when Tarzan says to Carla towards the end, no matter where I go, you will always be my mother, that, like... That really got me. I was like, <gasps> okay, write that down in my notes. It's fine. There's no dust in the room. It's fine. It's fine. More so than when Kerchak's dying and he says, like, you are my son. Yeah. Like, I don't buy that. I yeah. don't buy that. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's, that's a very last minute switch there. Yeah. Yeah. I always cry at this movie. And the points I always cry is always like Carla. Like at the very start is when I start crying, when her baby gets taken away and she discovers baby Tarzan because you just know that she just has an instant connection with him. I just find it so warm. And, and then you think you're right when Tarzan says, you know, you'll always be my mum. And her reaction is just so... I feel like she's kind of the heart of the film in a way, actually, Carla. Like, I don't really have... I, I like Kerchak, but he's not as well drawn out or well-rounded as she is. He's like a story obstacle where when he dies, yes. we don't really feel the emotion of his death. We feel the story function of... In that moment, he accepts Tarzan. Tarzan's journey is kind of complete, but we don't feel the sadness of it of, oh no, we love Kerchak and he's gone. Whereas we absolutely feel that for, for Carla. And I was terrified for Carla yes. when the end of this film was kicking off because as we've <laughs> said, Disney's approach to parents often involves kill him. Kill him now, make the kids cry. Uh, and I would have been an adult crying into my drinks. So there's all this emotion happening with these characters, right? And we spend a lot of time with the apes. And it's about half an hour into the film, as I said, before we ever meet another human. And we get a bunch of different humans entering this film. We have Jane, who will be Tarzan's love interest, who will be the person who kind of draws him closer back towards human society, gives him his first experience of romantic feelings and of companionship of somebody who looks just like him. She is joined by her goofy dad... <laughs> and a horrible, horrible, horrible man called Clayton, who, kind of like Ratcliffe in Pocahontas, Clayton is here as like, here is the nasty embodiment of colonialism. He is striding into the jungle with his gun, with his jungle outfit on, saying, ah, Africa was made for me to conquer. He steps in as, as the villain of the film. So we have all these external forces coming in. And that's a kind of big game changer for the narrative. That's when the, the film really turns a corner. For me... I kind of struggled because I was feeling a lot of stuff for Tarzan and the apes and really enjoying that adventure. I have to say I struggled with Jane. 
I found Jane annoying. And I don't, <laughs> I, I struggled to get past that. That was the one thing in this film that I wasn't as into. I think it's maybe the characterization that she's kind of striding into this film and stumbling about and causing stuff to go wrong. And she just blithely steps into this jungle because she's like, hey, I like gorillas. I'm going to stride into the jungle. And it's like, you don't need to be here and you're bringing all the bad people with you. I kind of struggled to connect with Jane. Is that just me? Am I a bad person? This is going to be... This is a bigger rift than anything that happened in Hercules. (laughs) You were like... Wait, really? You're that all in on Jane? Yeah, yeah. And it's this... It's on this watch. I think Jane is great. I I love Jane. I think Jane is... (laughs) one of the best things about this movie. You know, all the things that you like about the movie I like, I think Mini Driver absolutely crushes it in this. She's Maximum Driver. (laughs) Maximum (laughs) Driver. In a movie that stars Brian Blessed, Mini Driver (laughs) is given the best voice performance. I really, really love it. She carries the movie solo for a stretch as well. Like, when she's first introduced... And you get the baboon sequence where she's messing about with the baboon. <laughs> and then Tarzan saves her and she's screaming all the way. And then she has that first interaction with Tarzan where he doesn't see anything, really. She is carrying the movie completely on her shoulders. It's like maybe 10 minutes even of just unbroken Jane voice performance. <laughs> and the range that she's able to display, but also at like this manic pace during that of like, you know, she is smart and she is put together and she is prim and proper but she's also daft and clumsy and silly but she's also like very attracted to Tarzan but she's also affronted by Tarzan when he starts touching her own places you shouldn't touch a person he lifts up her skirt within 20 (laughs) seconds of meeting her don't do that Tarzan bad Tarzan yeah yeah bad stuff bad stuff but she tells him to get off and she kicks him in the face and I just love it, just the journey that she takes you on in that voice performance, that rat-a-tat. And then when she gets to the camp, she gives this excellent monologue where she's telling Porter and Clayton what happened. And it culminates in, Daddy, they took my boot! <laughs> <laughs> Which is great delivery. You get Porter comes in with, oh, those were the ones I bought you. <laughs> and then it goes straight from that into, and then I was carried off by a man in a loincloth and it's the way that she's moving between emotions so quickly but also believably but also in a way that's funny i just think is so compelling and i love jane like when she is on screen it just lights up the movie she's just funny i just i love anyone who uses the word hullabaloo because like (laughs) it's just it's the best i feel like in another actress's hand jane could have been a bit dry but i think because mini driver just sort of has chaotic energy manic energy she just has a lot of fun with it um but also i feel like i know people like that i know sort of posh english proper women who are just a bit unhinged and i think that is jane so I, i feel like i've seen that character like in reality yeah I mean, look, I am an embittered working class man, <laughs> but sometimes you just meet someone who is so posh so and posh. so silly and so chaotic that it is incredibly endearing. Ben, we went to uni with several of them, <laughs> and there's some of some of my fondest memories are of those people. That's what Mini Driver brings to this. Yeah, I, I love to watch it. Yeah, it's exactly that energy. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. There is definitely a version of this where, again, drawing from Victorian literature and... You could have had a really boring version of this character, and I'm glad we didn't get that. I think, Sam, you used the word silly, and I think that's right. (laughs) And it's fun and it's entertaining, but I think it clashed 
with the stuff that I was really enjoying in the film, which, as I said, was that slightly darker, more intense tone and the level of emotion going on that then that kind of energy, I don't know, maybe on repeated viewings, because I already plan on watching this again. I'm already quite (laughs) excited to watch this film again. Maybe Jane will grow on me like she does with Tarzan. But yeah, that, that was my kind of stumbling block on this first viewing. And again, I, I think maybe her dad doesn't help because... <gasps> Not Porter, oh, no! Ben, don't come for no! Porter. <laughs> Who is next on the hit list? Uh... You're going to take out Tantor as well? What is this? Love... <laughs> oh no, Tantor is great. Thumbs up for Tantor. Uh, but Porter, do you not like it when he's, cause he's just this little guy with his little bow tie? I and mean, when he chooses to join them at the end, he just whips off his bow tie. It's like <laughs> man unleashed. It's amazing. <laughs> My thing is, it's like I can totally see two random posh British people who don't mean any malice just stumbling into a jungle like that. I just can picture that happening. That's my thing. I've seen them stumbling into pubs in Newcastle. And we all have a laugh. (laughs) It's exactly the same. But I'm like, this isn't your world. You can like gorillas, but like, you shouldn't be here. Two worlds, one family. (laughs) I think the relationship between Jane and her dad is one of my favourite father-daughter relationships in these movies. Because a lot of these movies are built on father-daughter relationships. Uh, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast. Aladdin, Pocahontas, Mulan. And I, I like this one because we kind of get the best of both dads, as Hannah Montana once <laughs> said. Because you've got like Kerchak, who's like your big, beefy, conservative dad, like Triton. And then you've got Porter, who is your very silly kind of Sultan or Maurice dad. And he's my favourite of those. And I love what him and Jane have going on. The, again, it's the rat-a-tat, it's like the patter. There's a great bit when she's telling them about Tarzan, she goes, he walks like this, and she does like an impression of him walking on his knuckles, and then straight away Porter comes in with, oh, I see, like Aunt Isabel. <laughs> Come on, that is funny. They've got great banter them too. But they are just two stumbling British Muppets just in a jungle. I just can see it happening like in real life. That's, that's why I love it so much. I do like the fact that the film doesn't shy away from the fact that their presence there comes with this dark undercurrent, which is the arrival of Clayton. Those two things are very much combined in a way that I think is necessary for this story, that their presence also brings this dark kind of colonial force with them. This guy who wants to tame the jungle, who wants to capture all the gorillas for himself. Clayton is this sort of overblown villain. As I said, as with Ratcliffe in Pocahontas, they kind of make him the face of villainy, the face of the British Empire, of this kind of adventurer hero supposedly who in another story would be presented as the kind of swaggering gun-toting hero but here we see him for kind of who he really is and what he's really doing but for me again this came up in Pocahontas that putting all the blame on Ratcliffe himself kind of takes away some of the blame from the wider system of like this specific guy doing this specific thing is the villain rather than just this wider sweeping force of us going and messing around in things that we shouldn't be messing around in and letting things be and so I was feeling that while watching Clayton and I think maybe some of that spilled over (laughs) onto Jane and Porter. I think uh, a couple of things to spin off on that firstly to continue that thread about the ethics of putting all the blame on Clayton. There's also an issue here with 
through him and what he's up to, he is more a commentary on like environmental issues and animal rights issues than he is on the human cost of colonialism, which doesn't really factor into this. And in a sense, that's fine. Like, There's no onus on this movie to tackle that if that's not part of the story. But coming on the heels of The Lion King, is that another movie set in Africa without any African people in it? Uh, it feels quite conspicuous and significant. But also, yes, to get back to that idea of, like, these characters are linked, these characters are all to a degree at fault, I think it's really interesting how they do that through colour, because Tarzan's world in this movie is, like, deep, natural, earthy greens. And when he first encounters the humans, it is in this, like, big forest of bamboo, which is bright yellow. And as he enters into the human world... He enters into this world of yellows, which is associated with the alien and associated with threat. So the only real flashes of yellow that we've seen prior to this are Sabor the leopard, the biggest threat in Tarzan's life up to this point. And Clayton wears yellow, Jane and Porter also wear yellow, and the, the bamboo forest is yellow, the area in which they've set up their camp is yellow, the bullet that Tarzan picks up that's his first like, encounter with human technology is, is gold yellow. And as Jane becomes more familiar with Tarzan in the Strangers Like Me section, she takes off the yellow dress and we get the, the white shirt and burgundy skirt combo. Uh, which she rocks, but <laughs> the yellow is disposed of as she becomes more at one with Tarzan and implicitly more at one with the jungle and, and you know, empathetic towards what he is and what his world is. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point of the way that the film creates identities around these characters that come through in the design of the film itself and having this force kind of invade that space really took me back to Bambi that idea mm. of like man is in the forest man is in the jungle this force is coming in that is gonna cause destruction cause chaos has been a kind of through line going back to the earliest disney films it really feels like it's in a lineage of disney trying to capture natural environments but also capture what happens when humans enter into that environment and the destruction that it wreaks. Something that we discussed, Sam, when we did our crossover episode with the Ghibliotech guys, uh, with Jake and with Michael, was that Ghibli has a much more fluid approach to good and evil and that not necessarily being a binary and that a lot of their stories resulting in kind of harmony rather than one thing overcoming the other and disney does that in a much more simplified way i think as we said in that episode it's taken on a lot more ghibli influence in recent years mm. but i do think it has from the very beginning been concerned with ideas around nature and what happens when human influence enters nature and the destruction that that causes but i think is definitely felt in tarzan as well and creates this antagonistic force beyond just kerchak not allowing tarzan to really be a part of that ape family we've had to talk about some heavy stuff so i think we should delve into the phil collins again and <laughs> let's talk about the songs here because there's not a huge amount of them there is a small handful of songs but as you say emily the drums are on fire <laughs> Phil Collins has gone harder than he ever should have had to for this soundtrack, put together some absolute bangers. Do you have a favourite song from the film? One Family is the one that's really stayed in my head, but the sequence I'm most excited to rewatch is Son of Man. That is incredible. 
I feel like my mind changes every day about which is my favorite because you'll be in my heart such a sweet lullaby sort of style. And then Strangers Like Me has a great animated sequence as well because I love the slideshow sequence that they play yes. with Strangers Like Me. Just little moments in that slideshow where he sees like the penny farthing and then you have like Tarzan ride the penny farthing in the yes. jungle. They show him a praxinoscope. That's he the, sees the, yes. the, the penny farthing animated on the praxinoscope. They're teaching Tarzan, they're giving him his first lecture in animation studies. Oh. It's <laughs> another reason why I like Jane. <laughs> Jane knows her animation stuff, but that's a great scene. The Son of Man scene. Yes. Do you know what I think is actually really underrated? Is Trash in the Camp, the jungle jams. Yeah. No one talks about Trash in the Camp. Um, and a little cameo for Mrs. Potts as well, I think, for Beauty and the Beast. I think she's in there. It That's just such a... What you were saying about it, a lot of it's heavy, but then you just have, like, these gorillas and Tantor, you know, just having fun. Trash in the Camp. And it's just such a catchy jungle jam session. It's so fun. I want to be there. Yeah. I want to trash a camp. Yeah. <laughs> the... Phil Collins' influence as well of like, let's get into rhythm. Let's have a song that is a song that doesn't really have any proper lyrics, but that is all about an inventive approach to creating rhythm, I think is a really cool thing to have in this film. I love that that was in there. And the inventiveness of the different things that the gorillas are doing to create those sounds and layering them all on top of each other. It's almost like an actual collaboration between (laughs) Phil Collins and all of these gorilla characters. It's like they all hooked up together in the studio to create this thing uh, in a way that's really, really fun. I really just want to pick up on as well, you mentioned the slideshow sequence in, what what was that song called? Strangers Like Me. Strangers Strangers Like Me. me. It's Crash Course. I want to know. Sorry. (laughs) No, please do. I love it. I love hearing these songs. Uh, But that crash course that he has in sort of Western civilization and Western history. But Sam, for me, it was the level of detail in the Mm. animation that when he is looking at those projections, but the projection is partly onto his body and the images that are being projected are all in kind of lines and you see the individual lines of the images then projected onto his body and onto the wall. Even just moments like that, I was watching it going, the animation is just beautiful and detailed and really vibrant and had all of these touches beyond just the incredible incredible tree sliding stuff (laughs) which we'll, we'll come back to talking about that because we have to we have to talk about that a bit more but in all these little moments the film is just beautiful to look at and has all of these incredible things that you've never seen in a disney film until now yeah i think there's so many little bits in the slideshow that i love and it is just sort of taking us through history also i just love a slideshow like it's just great <laughs> again you would love one of my lectures yeah it just takes you back to like being at school and they just will out the little um wait, i don't know what it's called but the, the overhead projector the ohp the overhead projector <laughs> the ohp got your little laminate slides your little translucent uh sheets there with the text on love it yeah dry wipe yeah. markers you can write directly on the uh translucent sheets yeah, my cat's here now, sorry. Um, but ben... <laughs> Holmes has entered the chat, I was really hoping. Like, basically, we invited Emily on the show, but really what we wanted was, was Holmes cat. on the show, and he is here. He Hello, is here. Holmes. What are your thoughts on the songs of Tarzan? Holmes, take it away. Holmes actually loved Tarzan. I don't know if he just, okay. because he responded to the animals. Like, he's just tapping yeah. the mic now. Okay, bye then, Holmes. <laughs> bye, Holmes. He said he's... Oh, his tail's in shot. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting, actually, what films he responds to. Jaws is his favourite film. Okay. Every time the Jaws theme comes on, he tries to attack the TV. I don't know if it just awakens... <laughs> when you say the... favourite, 
Well, I feel like he's it awakens the predator in him. It's a, it's yes. what he's most responsive to. But he was very much enjoying Tarzan. Maybe he's just a secret Phil Collins fan. But mm-hmm. um, but one thing I always think about is you know the Cadbury advert as well with the gorilla and the oh, drums. Yeah. I have a link. I feel like it's just linked to Phil Collins in the way. Like whoever came up with the advert watched Tarzan was like right. Gorillas and drums need to. We need to do more with that. Maybe they like the trash in the camp, and actually thought, let's just see actually what happens. Yeah, if we give a gorilla drums, what would actually happen? Turns out, pretty good. Pretty I good. I thought that gorilla did great. I think the stuff that the music does so effectively is, even though it is slightly incongruous hearing this like Phil Collins soft pop through the course <laughs> of the film, is that it does create this emotional atmosphere, this emotional environment that one family is obviously the through line of the ideas of this film there's a lot of emotion tied up in that the same with son of man has this kind of the power of seeing this kid grow up and who he becomes and seeing him become at home in this environment the slideshow song as i'm now going to call it forever (laughs) is the song where he starts to discover a bit more about his romantic feelings and how to act on that around jane it creates this really overt emotionality to the film that I do think, as I said, pays off in the final act because I was really cut up over his saying to Carla, you'll always be my mum. Kerchak's death, I think, is very effective. You don't feel it, as I say, as much on that emotional level, but it does really work in the narrative. And yeah, Tarzan revisiting the treehouse has so much power that him discovering this environment that he never knew was there that holds all of these secrets and these answers and him seeing the picture of himself as a baby and seeing his parents and you see in that photo of his parents how his yes freaky adult face has been influenced by the faces of his parents in that photo it's it's all tied up in this emotion i think this is a really emotional film which i'm impressed that they managed to do that because really the overarching genre i would say of this is that it is like an action thriller in a way yeah hits you in the heart as well as the adrenaline gland <laughs> the adrenaline <laughs> gland i think it is really emotional and i think the music because it is a different sort of musical style isn't it because i think normally they use like broadway and menkin or i think like obviously Limamal miranda now and i love all that sort of stuff but here it's like the music feels different but it just works for tarzan and I think it resonates still now because it's it's rock and roll. That like rock and roll always rocks. But I think it's a really nice balance between being like contemporary rock and roll, but just capturing the spirit of Tarzan. As we said earlier, like the characters don't sing. So the music needs to tell that story. Um maybe some of the lyrics are like literally just saying what we see on screen. Like we like they speak about dangers. Tarzan swinging through the trees. Yeah. He lives with the gorillas now. <laughs> It's like, okay, Phil, exactly. we're, we're with you. We got it. I was thinking that yesterday, I was like, come on, Phil, like, lyrics might be a bit more subtle, but I suppose it has to speak to, like, really younger children, so maybe that's why it is a bit obvious, but it always gets me in the feels, always. These songs almost work just as, like, pop radio songs yeah, in the exactly. way that a lot of Disney songs end up on radio. Apart from the lyrics, like, some of the songs, the lyrics are, like, generic enough for a bit that you can just be like, oh, yeah, this is a normal song you could hear. And then you get, beneath the shelter of the trees, only love can enter here. A simple life, they live in peace. And it's like, <laughs> what is he on about? Do you, know, what? do you know what it feels like? It's just come to my head. It feels like a song written for, like, an X Factor winner. And I mean that with love. Of because it is it, it, the lyrics are very basic but also so weird but I know you were saying on Mulan about playing Mulan at house parties like Tarzan's also 
in that wheelhouse of if someone was at a house party put on Tarzan not get any complaints two worlds did come on once or twice it wasn't the fixture that I'll make a man out of you was but it did come on once or twice do you know what Sam when this podcast is finished when we get to the end when we finally reach film 61 are we going to be on at least 62 by then because Wish is coming out in November they just put out a trailer for Wish if you're listening to this up to date should we throw like a Disney versity house party and we'll get all the guests around and we'll put a playlist on and we'll relive your teenage dream with all these hits, including a good smattering of Phil Collins. But I think what happens is the emotion that this film creates through the songs, through the storytelling, then really amps up the action. I just want to zone in on the action for a minute because as I teed up before the tree swinging sequences so damn good in this film. I think it's the fluidity of the animation, the speed of the animation. I think there's just an extra level of fidelity. And as we said, the way that it approaches these 3D environments is so thrilling to be kind of flung around in that environment. There's a moment, I think it's when Tarzan is saving Jane from the baboons. And he has her in his arms. And he's like sliding towards the camera but the vine is like two intertwined vines together or the, the tree trunks. And so his feet are going zig, 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 zag, zig, zag, zig, zag as he's sliding towards the camera. And I was like, this is so cool. How is this not a Disney roller coaster? Why yeah. did they not turn this into a ride at Disneyland? These sequences feel like they're designed to make you feel like you are on a roller coaster in the middle of a jungle. Disney, do that. If you're listening to this, please don't sue us for any reason and also make that ride because I want to go on that ride. But there's all those sequences through the center of the film, you really feel that. And as I said before, the leopard attacks are really ferocious. And then at the end of the film, Clayton's attack on Tarzan at the end, holy smokes. He's really going in. It's in the dark. It's at nighttime. It's lit by all of these lightning flashes. It's Clayton slashing through the vines, through the trees. There's a ferocity to that. There's a real extra level of danger, as I said. Kind of more than any other Disney film, I think, that we've seen so far. It feels so intense and exciting. And it leads to this really dark conclusion of Clayton hanging himself in the vines and in the lightning crashes we see the silhouette of his hanging body yeah whoa (laughs) that's another level isn't it it does open with a dead gorilla baby so i feel like true you know it is very dark i love the action i always forget how good those swinging through the tree scenes are because i think growing up i was such like a big georgia the jungle girl as well it's like tarzan Georgia the Jungle. I think didn't Brendan Fraser audition for Tarzan as well? I think he auditioned for Oh, possibly. Both. I don't know. Because obviously it's Tony Goldwyn plays Tarzan. So I was looking at images last night of like the premiere and Tony Goldwyn. He obviously looks nothing like Tarzan. This gangly sort of man kind of awkwardly standing next to a Tarzan post at the premiere. Love Tony Goldwyn, by the way. He pops up in everything. Like, I think he was in Plane recently, that wacky Jared Butler action film. He's going to be in Oppenheimer, but everyone's in Oppenheimer. I'm sure us three are in Oppenheimer because (laughs) it's stacked cast. I just think, yeah, the action is so good. I didn't know it wasn't a roller coaster. I've not been to Disneyland yet. One day I'll go. 
maybe they'll make it just in time for me to like get to Disneyland. They've been waiting. They were like, we're not going to make this. We've got one person <laughs> over in England who really wants to ride this ride. So we'll wait until she comes to Disneyland and then we'll and open then it. It's time. Yeah. But it, it is like an innovation in terms of Tarzan because you picture Tarzan, you picture him swinging through the trees. That's what he does. He swings on the vines. He goes, there's <laughs> <laughs> a real primal element to that so tony goldman does the voice of tarzan but brian blessed does that that's what he reckons yeah <laughs> that's apparently a fun fact but it's brian yeah. blessed but it's Tony for everything else i was watching a video of brian blessed because i was like is that true and he tells the story on stage and it's very funny because he's brian blessed and he exclusively refers to tony goldman as the villain from ghost <laughs> 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 Which feels quite dismissive. It's like, they had the villain from Ghost playing Tarzan, and he couldn't do the yell, but I could do the yell. And it just feels like a very Brian Blessed story yeah. to just make up. But it also sounds like a very Brian Blessed story to actually happen. Yeah. So who knows? You just never know. I was listening for it, and I don't know, kind of sounds like a cross between them. Anyway, so you normally picture Tarzan swinging through the trees and doing that, was my original point. But here they were like, let's think of something new, let's think of something more dynamic. And what they came up with was, apparently because Glenn Keane, who was the lead animator on Tarzan, his son was really into extreme sports at that point in time. And weren't we all? Extremely goofy movie, just around the corner and all of that. And he thought, oh, let's make him move like a skateboarder. Let's make him move like a surfer. And the directors didn't want him to, like, make Tarzan a surfer dude. They didn't want a Tarzan who, like, talked like a ninja turtle. Like, cowabunga and all of that. But he did a test of him, you know, surfing down the tree vines. And that is what is in the Son of Man sequence. Really? That is how good Glenn Keane is. Wow. That was his first try oh at doing God. this. That's what made it in. And they were like, oh, yeah, okay, this works. Totally. Disney legends. Yeah, but Son of Man sequence is the ultimate swinging through the trees sequence as well. That's when it gets really dynamic. So before we reach the end, I just wanted to flag up an extremely rogue and possibly inadmissible Disneyversity legend choice. <laughs> Again, okay. this feels like a movie where there's not a lot of characters and they're all relatively iconic, well-known characters, so it was hard to pick someone really obscure. So I just went with the puppet of Professor Porter that Tantor operates when they're trying to distract Kerjack. <laughs> it's on screen for about five seconds, but it's very amusing. <laughs> and that's Tanto's trunk, right? Yeah. yeah. With a little moustache on it and with a little hat. Yeah, I like it. On. It really, it looks like it could have come straight out of Fraggle Rock. <laughs> Tantor getting his Jim Henson on. I also feel like we've not done enough Tantor Love either, actually. Just big shout out to Tantor. Who's, it's like Nedry, isn't it? From Jurassic Park as well, voices Tantor. Yeah, Wayne Knight. It's yeah. Wayne Knight. Um, I just love Tantor. He's just an anxious, paranoid elephant. He's just like me, guys. So, you know. <laughs> you know what? Baby Tantor. Again, I don't know if it's admissible. All of these... So I've got two pictures and they're both Tantor. <laughs> there's, there's Tantor, Puppeteer and Porter. And then there is Baby Tantor, who's just like even more neurotic, but adorable. And he's scared of piranhas. Talking about bacteria as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's cute. So, I don't know. As a big respecter of the rules and as a big respecter of the ocean and water and the creatures dwelling in that water that it's not my business to be in there and so they will harm me and that won't be their fault. They're just doing what they do. That is their realm. That is their domain. They're not coming on land trying to mess my stuff up. 
I really related to Tantor in that moment. <laughs> Maybe the Disney versus Legend just full stop is Tantor. Hmm. Yeah, I think the fact that we forgot to talk about him until right at the end suggests that maybe <laughs> he is slightly less well-known than the other characters. Yeah, so. he is, yeah. I think we should put him in the Disney versus Legends canon partly as well because he can do the fanfare himself. Hey. <laughs> Gonna stick some Phil Collins drums behind that in the edit and see what happens. Uh, okay then, let's quickly talk about the end of the film because... I was really upset for a while when I thought they were going to do the Disney thing of, as Sam has often brought up on this podcast, we have to domesticate our hero. We have to create some kind of domestic equilibrium in the final moments of the film, even if it kind of goes against what we actually want for the character. And so I was there going, oh God, they're going to take Tarzan back to England, aren't they? And that's going to suck and he's gonna be like it's fine because i've got jane and i'm like i don't like jane don't go to england for jane (laughs) but they don't do that and tarzan stays in the jungle he gets the big thumbs up from kerchak i love that moment of kerchak saying you came back and tarzan says i came home oh mic drop so he stays in the jungle then just got me in a bad place where Jane's like, I'm gonna stay too! And then Jane's dad can't read the room and be like, maybe I should leave these guys to it. They're they're loved up. They've got their whole situation going on. He's just like, I'm also gonna stay! (laughs) And you have that shot of Tarzan and Jane flying through the jungle, which yes, is a cool ending, but she shouldn't be as good on the vines as she is at that point. No, she shouldn't. And Porter's bear as well, also swinging, and he's good at the vines. Like, what is going on? She has basically swapped her normal clothes for, like, a jungle loincloth situation, and it's like, that is Tarzan's outfit, I guess, that he grew up in. He's from the jungle. You don't need to suddenly not wear clothes just because you're with Tarzan. I don't know. I had a lot of conflicting thoughts about this ending, as much as I was thrilled by more vine-swinging action. Like teenagers in 2013, they're all really good at the vines. (laughs) (laughs) That was a joke for Ben, because Ben loves vines. Yeah. Something that Sam and I occasionally do is just look up, like, 20-minute vine compilations on YouTube and watch them until can't breathe anymore (laughs) from laughing so hard. Anyway, just to to get back to the actual end of this movie, (laughs) yes, I had notes on this because of how it does kind of subvert the standard Disney trope exemplified by the Jungle Book of... He's just going to go back to normal. And, you know, of course, we've not mentioned the Jungle Book yet. There's lots of connections. Uh, Burroughs was influenced by Kipling with his own story, another, like, feral child story. But here, he doesn't return to the human world like Mowgli, but he still builds a family. He still achieves a kind of domestic equilibrium. But it's in the jungle. And I think the fact that Porter and Jane are there works. I think it enhances that, not just because it means you can do a a season of a TV show where they're all just hanging out in the jungle together, but it feels like we're moving towards a less conservative Disney because we see neither Tarzan nor Jane assimilate into the other's version of normality. They integrate their cultures in a way that feels beneficial to both worlds. One family. Two worlds. (laughs) One family. They should use that. That feels like it's got a lot of potential. Yeah. So now that we are back in England, where Porter should be, guys, just saying, (laughs) that brings us to Discarded, the section of the show 
where we look back at the original tale the filmmakers drew from and dig up all the dark, strange stuff that didn't make the movie. Now, as we've teed up Sam, Edgar Rice Burroughs, early adventure writer, I imagine there's a lot of tropes around jungles and colonialism and invading forces that we would not use today, and I'm intrigued to see what kind of craziness is happening in these Tarzan novels. Where yes. are you going to take us first? There's a lot going on, and uh, some of it's funny, and some of it isn't. So let's start light and then get dark and then get light again. And we'll start by okay. discussing like the basic plot differences between what we have in the movie and what we have in the original book. So first up, I, I said we're going to start light. Um, Kerchak murders Tarzan's dad. Oh... oh. Oh, okay. That 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 changes things. Yeah. yeah. And when Tarzan grows up, he murders Kerchak <gasps> and takes his place as King of the Apes. Oh, it's a revenge story. It's a rip-roaring rampage of revenge. Yes. And then later on, Tarzan murders Turk. <laughs> oh, what? Not Turk? <laughs> like... Wow. He's like, I got the elephant hair. <laughs> <laughs> so Turk is male in the novel and takes over the tribe when Tarzan leaves initially to go off with the humans. And he gets ousted as leader because he's a bit rubbish at it. And he kidnaps Jane in revenge, I guess. So Tarzan, he stabs him right through his heart. Stabbed through the heart and Turks to blame. (laughs) He gives apes a bad name. All right, That's cool. adding nothing, but it's <laughs> all I've got. Thought you were going to rhyme it with gin somehow, but you, you, uh, got, yeah. you, you went a different direction. Yeah, damn it. Okay, anyway, so that's that's one, well, two kind of big twists, big changes. It turns out that Clayton, who isn't that bad a dude in the novel, because I just think generally Burroughs has a bit more sympathy with colonialism and with the English aristocracy, as we'll find out. Clayton is Tarzan's cousin, from back home. He's his cousin from England. That's a bit convenient, isn't it? Yeah. And Clayton has inherited Tarzan's family's wealth and estate since they disappeared. And the first novel ends with him getting engaged to Jane and Tarzan thinking, well, I'm not going to do anything about this because I want Jane to be happy. I'm not going to tell them that it's actually my money because she wants him, not me. I'm going to let them make a family in England. But then in the second book, The Return of Tarzan, Jane leaves Clayton for Tarzan because they get attacked by a lion and Clayton responds with cowardice and to be honest fair play <laughs> like I, I know if your competition's tarzan that's not gonna look great but for most people i would say cowardice is an appropriate response to lion attack unless you're idris elba in that recent beast. movie beast where he fought a lion good times yes so eventually tarzan settles down with jane in two places two different worlds they have two different homes they well two worlds but it's it's still just one family right it is it is one family don't worry about that how many times have we done that (laughs) (laughs) not enough it's gonna happen as many times as disney as well disney's (laughs) guy to be honest that is true (laughs) so they settle down on tarzan's estate in london the estate that he inherits from the clayton's and they move between there and an estate that they've built in Africa on the land of a fictional tribe called the Waziri. And basically, Tarzan becomes just another colonizer. He takes wealth from African tribes and uses it to improve his estate. He takes their land. He takes them as his servants. So 
when you picture how do Africans factor into the novel Tarzan, because of course they do factor into the novel, maybe you think, oh, it's going to be like a white saviour narrative, but it's not even that. It's it's just full-on white conqueror. Like, he is just colonising Africa. He just happened to have been born there and raised by apes before he did it. And this is very reflective of the real-life politics of Edgar Iceberg's, which are utterly monstrous. So he was a massive racist. He was basically a eugenicist. He believed that one's racial heritage determines one's nature, and that is the entire point of the novel of Tarzan. He wanted to tell a story where someone who is by blood a white British aristocrat can be raised by apes and still retain his nobility, still come out the other end of it as a member of the master race, effectively, even though he was raised by apes, even though he was raised as a savage. And this is demonstrated by constantly comparing him with native Africans who are savages, cannibals, or subservients. And that's why there are no Africans in the movie, because in the novels, in every adaptation of Tarzan from back in the day, where there are Africans, they are portrayed hideously. They are savages, they are the enemy, they are the counterpoint to Tarzan's nobility. So... Yes, they remove African characters, which I think is problematic in itself, but that also removes that eugenicist message because it places emphasis on his upbringing. That is what built his character, right? Because Carla is a good mother, because he had friends who cared for him. He was raised by the apes who are characterised with empathy to be a good person. So what we have is a story that's more focused on what we've been talking about, which is the difference between humans and animals, the difference between man and nature, than it is the difference between civilization and savagery. It's not contrasting two different kinds of people. They remove the natives as a point of contrast. So we don't have Tarzan thriving because he is an aristocrat. We have Tarzan thriving because of what makes him human, his ability to solve problems, his ability to use tools, for example. And that's why it's significant, as I mentioned before, that he, he looks uncomfortable dressed as a gentleman in the suit. The literary Tarzan would have filled that suit out. He would have performed that role to perfection because that is what he is by birth. So Disney are fixing this story in a very active way. And I, I still think... It's not like there would have been no way to work Africans into this story that wasn't racist, but it's a shame to see Disney not try, I think. But in allied in that point of contrast with the native Africans, we end up with a story that at least removes the eugenics of the situation, which I think is pretty laudable for what it is. Yeah, it's fascinating to hear the lengths that they went to and the choices that they made to still tell a story of Tarzan of this kid raised by gorillas in the jungle but remove a lot of that really terrible terrible context uh suddenly the film version of jane and porter don't seem so bad anymore maybe <laughs> yeah, exactly. i'm slightly warming to them and, and there was promotion at the time they were t- they had like the burroughs family in like the making of featurettes and things oh. like that and, and they were publicizing this story about him finding the letter that said that he wanted disney to make a movie and it's like it's oh yeah the animated version this is the version that Burroughs would have wanted and it's like yeah not quite <laughs> no there's there's some stuff that was quite central to the ideas of, of the originals that is absent but there are lots of things from the sequels to the novel that are absent because the first few novels were this fairly straightforward like what we imagine to be the Tarzan story and then 
eventually, on, like, novel seven or eight, he kind of jumps the shark. (laughs) Okay, what have we got in store? (laughs) Yeah, okay, we're back in business now, we can have fun again. So, I'm going to go through some Tarzan novel titles, and just basically tell you what happens very quickly. Tarzan Untamed. He goes on a rampage of revenge against the German army after they raid his home and seemingly kill Jane, and he feeds them to lions. Lions. (laughs) A lot of lions going on in these. I like it. Um, Tarzan the Terrible finds a hidden valley populated by dinosaurs. (laughs) They should have done that. Please tell me they do a bit of that. I love dinosaurs. I love dinosaur (laughs) movies. This is, what, a decade after Land Before Time at this point. But come on, a Tarzan Land Before Time crossover. The thing we could have had. Yeah. Uh, Tarzan and the Ant-Men. He finds a race of ant-sized men. (laughs) (laughs) Is this in the MCU? Yeah, this is a new crossover. (laughs) At this point, it very much solidifies that the formula of Tarzan is, in every novel, he finds a different hidden valley somewhere (laughs) in the jungle with a different crazy character living there. Tarzan and the Earth's core. He visits the Earth core. Do you want to guess what he finds at the Earth's core? Is it like Godzilla vs. Kong and it's full of freaky monsters and this big flat lizard guy? Yeah, it's basically more dinosaurs, yeah. Yes! (laughs) Um, Tarzan and the Lion Man. A man raised by lions? Well, this is the thing. So I was reading the synopsis for Tarzan and the Lion Man. Some of these have quite detailed synopses on Wikipedia and some of them don't. The one for Tarzan the Lion Man doesn't mention the Lion Man. It just says that... <laughs> he's a totally character. Like, he's in the title. <laughs> well, in this one, all I know is that Tarzan meets a mad scientist who runs a city of talking gorillas. It's possible there's a Lion Man there as well. I w- dare say it's likely there's a Lion Man there as well, but I can't confirm it because I haven't read it. But what I can confirm is that in Tarzan and the Leopard Men, he does fight some Leopard Men. Okay. <laughs> like hybrid guys. Um, like Thundercats, I guess. Uh, so that's the Tarzan novels. Bonkers. Swings and roundabouts, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, Burroughs, what are we going to do about that guy? I'd like, yeah, some insight into his mind as he wrote stories about lion men and Earth's core. There's only so many hidden valleys in the jungle. Yeah, he's, he's writing this like novel about Tarzan fighting like tiny men. And all the while he's thinking like, Oh yeah, this will this will prove well with the master race. Yeah, if 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 they hadn't figured it out already, this one will like demonstrate the superiority of the British aristocracy. Bell end. <laughs> okay, so that is discarded. That is the madness that didn't make it in, and the horribleness that Disney managed to avoid somehow. So. What were the reviews like for this, Sam? I'm going to say I actually did do a little Google last night because I was so shocked by how much I enjoyed this film. But I was like, <laughs> did everyone... This surely got banger reviews at the time. It kind of seems like it did, right? This was a big thumbs up from critics at the time. Yes, it was generally getting positive reviews from critics. Entertainment Weekly basically said the special effects were better than The Matrix, which I'm on board with. Ben, you're a Matrix guy. Nah, Sam is weirdly like a Matrix denier. The Matrix is amazing, but the Matrix is incredible. Put Tarzan into the Matrix and see what oh, happens. Oh, okay, yeah. Or put the guys from the Matrix into Tarzan. Like this is the new Matrix. Yeah, you're in the jungle. I mean, or whatever. Those movies are dumb. Sorry. <laughs> this is all 1999, so that's why the comparison is going to be made. This is the year of the Matrix and. The Phantom Menace. This was like a big year for movies. 1999 was a a big year for kind of classics, things that people were really excited for, big event movies, but also stuff that people kind of didn't see coming. 
And I do think it's quite an interesting comparison point because The Matrix does fascinating stuff with the bullet time rigs, the camera setups to create 3D space to pause time and move the camera in paused moments. And that's not exactly what Tarzan is doing, but it does speak to that thing that we've been talking about of how it creates 3D space and moves the camera around within that 3D space in animation. So I can I can sort of see why they made that comparison, but let's not get nuts and say that this <laughs> film is better than The Matrix. As much as I absolutely loved watching this film, it's not, it's not The Matrix. Barely anything is. I mean, I agree with that. No, I don't want to raise the ire of Matrix fans, of whom I know there are many. It's a cool-looking movie. Obviously, the special effects are sick. I just don't care about it, and I find it dull. But Entertainment Weekly's critic <laughs> agrees. They wrote that I'm over the whole black trench-coated chic thing at this point, but I could still swing on Tarzan's cartoon vines for days. They just want everyone to wear loincloths, clearly ditched a trench coat it's it's purely a fashion thing yeah put neo in a loincloth and then they basically did in the matrix reloaded the less spoken about that the better (laughs) um so elsewhere roger ebert give it a four out of four that's his his maximum score saying this bright colorful hyperkinetic animation is a visual exhilaration yes animation cuts loose from what we can actually see and shows us what we might ideally see which is great i think roger ebert's a real animation guy he seems to be on board with a lot of these disney movies Variety said that the computer animation and graphics are often intermingled and combined in ways that are more distracting in their differences than helpful, which I disagree with. There's other Disney movies where that is the case, but I think here they integrated it really well. And lastly, Washington Post said that this Walt Disney animated feature isn't up there with Aladdin, The Lion King and The Little Mermaid, but it's easily above the riff-raff ranks of Hercules and Pocahontas. Ooh, fighting words. I don't like Hercules. That satisfies me as well. So sorry. Yes. <laughs> We're going to have to quiz every guest that we have on from here on in, Sam, of where they sit on the Hercules divide. Well, we'll see if our rankings bear that out. And you call it riffraff, though, so... Because <laughs> <laughs> no one calls anything riffraff anymore. Maybe we'll bring that up. <laughs> Do you know up. who would? Jane would. Jane would be as a riffraff. She would call it riffraff. <laughs> also, the antagonist in Aladdin use that oh, quite they? a lot oh, yeah street uh, rat riff, riff raff i don't yeah. buy that so this gets great reviews the film is great and yet 1999 was a massive year for movies with all kinds of competition did this manage to punch through was this a box office hit at the time it was a box office hit and how could okay. it not be with a marketing campaign that included mcdonald's tarzan sound straws straws with a big plastic tarzan head on them yeah. that make the tarzan noise when you're slow oh my god oh, i want one <laughs> yes there has to be videos of this on youtube yeah there's commercials up. and stuff I'll, I'll tweet it out yeah so look it was destined to be a hit it had the second highest opening for a disney film after the lion king wow so big hit okay yeah and clearly the key is adult contemporary pop artists plus jungle equals (laughs) success like equals hype at least right like there's the next best opening weekend never had there been hype for a disney movie more than there was for tarzan and they're big epic adventure movies maybe that's like what audiences want at this point in time action scene yeah yeah it made $171 million domestic and $448 million worldwide. That's the third highest grosser of the Disney Renaissance. Ooh. I mean, it's all skewed by the fact that I just d- didn't see this film as a kid and didn't have it, but 
I never think of Tarzan as being a huge one. Maybe it doesn't have the cultural legacy that some of the other films have. But interesting to hear that this was a this was a big movie for them. This was a big hit. When did it come out? It was 99. So yeah, I would have been, because I was born year of the Lion King. I was a 94 baby, so Lion King, yeah. So I would have been five, so like peak Tarzan age. I remember this being massive for kids my age. And I think also, because you got like Phil Collins, it attracts the mums and dads. Like they want to go see what Phil Collins, why is Phil Collins soundtrack in this random Disney film? (laughs) It it attracts all ages that way. It's a four quadrant smash. So it's the third only to The Lion King and Aladdin. Handily beats Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast made 332 million. This made 448. That is Whoa. huge. Yeah. But it, this the narrative is always the Disney renaissance is on the downturn. It's in a slump. We've had a few movies that didn't do anywhere near as well as their predecessors. Tarzan is not part of that trend. Tarzan is a big hit. And it's only really afterwards that you'd start to see huge disappointments that would really spell the end of this this era of great success. Interesting. Okay, so then what about our ratings? I'm going to come to Emily first. What would you give this out of five? Sum up your thoughts on um, this film. Five bananas out of five, I feel. Because <laughs> we have to rate via bananas, because that's okay. Tarzan that appropriate. I said this was a big one for me growing up, but I hadn't watched it in like a long time. So I watched it twice this week, because my boyfriend wanted to watch it as well. Because he was like, you can't watch Tarzan without me. And I was like, <laughs> this is very true. I always forget how good the story because I always I always remember the music and the animation. I always forget how good yeah the story is and characters like Carl. I just instantly fall in love with them. I just think it's so it's surprisingly relatable considering it's about a man in a jungle. Very good. So five bananas out of five. Sam, where are you going on the banana scale? I think I'm at four bananas, and it's <sighs> this was a big swing up upswing. It's a swing for me. <laughs> a vine swing. A vine swing. Yeah, this was. One of those movies, Hunchback is also in this category where on this watch it was like, oh yeah, this is fantastic. This is just perfect. The computer graphics are integrated flawlessly. It looks brilliant. It's a huge step forward for animation. And we are going to see the return of Deep Canvas, but obviously Disney aren't making movies with hand-drawn animation for much longer after this. So Deep Canvas actually doesn't have that long a lifespan as like a primary production tool for Disney films. This is probably the peak of its use. It's certainly the best movie that utilised it to this extent. So we'll, we'll encounter it again, though. So for that reason, this is a thrilling movie. And it feels like such a fully realised world. I think the colour is amazing, which I've touched on before. The music is good. <laughs> it's Yeah, the music is good. It's not... I'm sorry, I'm not going to laugh you out of the room, but it's not the best Disney soundtrack of all time. I think just... I would have to give that to an actual musical. I don't think this movie needs to be a musical, <laughs> mm. but I couldn't put it above Beauty and the Beast or The Little Mermaid because it, it's not a musical, you know? But yeah, I loved it. I don't want. I feel like I've given nearly all the Renaissance movies four stars, but this, is, this isn't four stars, it's four bananas, so that's fine. <laughs> well, I'm going four and a half bananas. One of my bananas is a banana split. (laughs) But I was so unprepared for how much I was going to love this film, for how good it was going to be. I just feel like it doesn't have that much of a cultural legacy. The only person I hear talking about this movie these days is Emily. And I was just hooked within minutes. I thought it was so exciting. I thought the animation was absolutely stunning and doesn't really get the credit that it deserves like how good this film looks how exciting this film still feels because of the visuals the storytelling is really clean 
truly, and I'm sad to say this, the half banana lost is because I just didn't really get along with Jane. Maybe that will change on future viewings, but this is so good. I feel like this doesn't get the hype that it deserves. I think it's because it came after The Lion King, which is obviously amazing. Like, it's similar to, yeah, the Elton John thing, Africa, animals. So I feel like it just sort of gets a bit lost in the wilderness, but they're both bangers. (laughs) Yeah, it's playing on that Lion King level for me really like maybe i don't think it's as good as the lion king and i have a lot of personal attachment to the lion king but it's closer to that end of the scale than i ever thought it was going to be and sam just as we're approaching the end of the renaissance this batch of films that we've done the amount of variety in this era like i know these films still count as the renaissance but really as you said the narrative has been that post the lion king everything's on a bit of a downward swing but you look at films like hunchback and mulan and hercules and this and the interesting choices they're making the fascinating things they're doing how distinctive and different they are from each other but they still feel like poppy 90s disney it's really fascinating and to go out i know we've got fantasia 2000 next week but to go out on a high like this in terms of the narrative features I just didn't see it coming and I'm really glad that this podcast has got me to watch this film and I think I'm going to hold this really high in my ranking when we get to the study group. It is really interesting because part of the narrative of what the Renaissance is is they are a series of movies that follow a formula. That's why it holds weight as a label and that's why that label usually extends past The Lion King into an era where the movies generally aren't making as much money as they used to. But yeah, when you get past Lion King, you do start to see that formula being subverted or altered or shifted in lots of different ways, and not least with Tarzan, especially because it is not a musical, you know, and that's Mm -hmm. a big part of what makes these films function as as a group. That's why people consider them to be a group. So this is an outlier in, in several ways, and it does make a good little full stop on this era. But we are going to do Fantasia 2000. And then we're going to do our ranking episode. And I'm really looking forward to finding out where Ben puts Tarzan. Yeah. Me too. Me too. Right then, that takes us to Lasting Legacy. Because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. Sometimes they are a Game Boy Color game that you play for hours and hours on end. Uh, In the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies and more, there is a whole universe out there for each character. So, despite the disappointment that there is not yet a Tarzan skating on trees roller coaster, <laughs> what is out there, Sam? What is The Lasting Legacy? So, shall we start with Tarzan 2? So, this is a movie, a Disney movie, where we start off with a character being depicted as a child, and then there's a time jump, and we'll see them later on in their lives. And law dictates that that means the sequel needs to actually be a midquel that is still following them as a child which has absolutely nothing to say about their journey, about their growth as characters, about the themes of the original film. So this is a movie where Tarzan runs away from the gorillas. Little Tarzan runs away from the gorillas because he feels like he doesn't belong with the gorillas. He feels like he's kind of a danger to Carla because Carla's trying to protect him and that's putting her in danger. And he falls in with a cranky old gorilla played by George Carlin who teaches him that it's okay that he's not a gorilla. (laughs) (laughs) Because he's a Tarzan. 
Okay. He's his own thing. <laughs> the original film, I was shocked by how thrilling it was. This sounds so deeply boring. It's <laughs> unbelievably dull. It's pants. It looks like crap, but it doesn't look as much like crap as Tarzan and Jane, which is set after, obviously, set after the movie. And that's a compilation, mostly, of three episodes from the TV show, which is we'll talk about after. But they did this with Hercules as well. They build a really weak frame and narrative with animation that is even worse than the animation in the TV show. <laughs> Where, in this case, it's their wedding anniversary, so they're reminiscing about past adventures. And when it transitions from, like, the new animation from for Tarzan and Jane into the animation from the TV show, it's like, oh my god, how cheap was this? I tried watching this last night after Tarzan. I couldn't get past, like, I think her British friends arrive, and I was like, right, I'm turning it off. <laughs> yeah, one posh lass is enough. But yeah, exactly. About four, I can't cope with that. So, to be fair, the TV show is pretty good. I used to watch this quite a bit when I was a kid. Not as good as the Hercules show, but it's decent. In part because it brings in other concepts from Beryl's books. So, yes, they do find the Dinosaur Valley <gasps> in this show. <laughs> no way. There are several episodes featuring dinosaurs. Yes. There's an episode where Clayton's evil sister comes back for revenge. It's kind of cool. There's one called Tarzan and the Rough Rider, where he meets, not DMX, he meets <laughs> President Theodore Roosevelt, who comes to the jungle and tries to shoot Tantor, because that's what Teddy Roosevelt does. <sighs> but he changes his ways when Tarzan saves him from kidnappers. Okay. So there's a bit of like political intrigue there, saving the president. <laughs> but then we've also got Tarzan and the Mysterious Visitor, where a young writer named Ed travels to the jungle in search of inspiration for his next novel. And he, he makes friends with Tarzan. He thinks, man, this guy seems to me like a beacon of white supremacy. Let's write a novel where he murders his dad and his best mate. That seems like <laughs> a, a great way to pay tribute to my new friend Tarzan, which happened in the Little Mermaid cartoon as well. We covered that. She meets Hans Christian Andersen, the make friends, and then he decides to write a novel where she suffers endless excruciating pain. These don't work as concepts, especially when you're dealing with a monstrous dude like this. So... Yeah, that's not my favourite episode. My favourite episode's the dinosaur episode. <laughs> of course. Has to be. Yeah. Ben's immediately putting that on. <laughs> like today. Yeah, Sam, I'm coming round. I'm coming round to yours now and we're gonna stick those on. So what else have we got? There was a very short lived, unsuccessful Broadway musical with more Phil Collins songs where the characters actually get to sing the songs. That's kind of interesting. Lots of people dressed like apes, lots of people swinging about. But the best Tarzan stage show is Tarzan Rocks from Florida's Disney Animal Kingdom, a rock concert featuring yes. a live rock band yeah. and slightly heavier versions of the Phil Collins songs along with an acrobatic dance show. Things that happen in this show <laughs> include a singer like Phil Collins impersonator basically saying, everybody say rock, everybody rock. say roll. roll. <laughs> <laughs> What's more rock and roll than that? Um, <laughs> Turk comes out at one point wearing a Britney mic to do Trash in the Camp. <laughs> nice. And at the absolute peak of the show, and possibly of just the Disney parks in general, there is a gorilla rollerblade interlude where a bunch <laughs> of gorillas come out on rollerblades 
the guitarist like stands in the middle of the stage and rips out this incredible solo and one of the gorillas does a flip over the guitarist on rollerblades no that sounds so good need to see this like yeah so is that'll it still be going, going on twitter as well it's not still going oh, no. no um <laughs> I can't imagine there weren't any injuries. Um, oh, yeah. That might have been part of it. <laughs> but yeah, it's not still going, but it is. There's a lot of fairly decent versions of it on YouTube, so I'll, I'll put some of that on Twitter. No Tarzan roller coasters. In Hong Kong Disneyland, there is a shop called Professor Porter's Trading Post. And from the photos I've seen, it mainly sells Marvel and Toy Story merchandise. <laughs> but look, a guy's got to eat. <laughs> like, he, he knows where the money is at Disneyland at the minute. There is a Tarzan treehouse in California. That's... I think the most recent, like, still operational major Tarzan attraction, that's a walkthrough treehouse with dioramas of of scenes from the movie. And it replaced... This is deep Disneyland nerdery. (laughs) It replaced the Swiss Family Robinson treehouse. So most Disneylands have this, but it's the Swiss Family Robinson treehouse. There's one in Paris, for example. They made it Tarzan in California, but now they are in the process of of taking it back to Swiss Family Robinson. They're moving back in. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why, I guess, because it's, it's not like there's been a huge resurgence in love for the Swiss Family Robinson movie. Or I don't think there's a remake on the cards, certainly not if they know what's good for them. But I guess it just feels a little bit more timeless than Tarzan, which is tied to a very specific movie, which isn't so popular anymore. Not as popular as it should be. Any other video games other than the Game Boy one that I had? Was that like a contracted version? Was there a bigger, fancier version of that game? Yes, so there was Tarzan Action Game, (laughs) following on the heels of Hercules Action Game (laughs) on the PlayStation 1. But this is a level up from Hercules because it is at least got 3D models instead of the 2D sprites of the Hercules one. It is still 2D though. But there are levels where you play as Jane Uh and a level where you play as Turk, and a level where you play as Turk dressed as Jane, riding on Tantor, running away from Kerchak. That is great. There was a level on the Game Boy one, sorry I keep bringing this up, but um, <laughs> when Tarzan has to rescue everybody from the boat, there was a, a level on the Game Boy one where you were on the boat trying to open all the crates. Uh, so mm. when that part of the movie kicked in, I was like, ah, okay, this, I've is, been here this is coming back to me. Yeah. <laughs> But maybe the most notable appearance of Tarzan in a video game is in Disney's Extreme Skate Adventure, where he finally goes back to his extreme sports roots. This game is literally just a kid's version of Tony Hawk. It uses the same engine as Pro Skater 4, and it lets you skate around the worlds of Tarzan, The Lion King, and Toy Story. No, I need to play this. I love Tony Hawk games. Here's a list of characters that you can skate as in Disney's Extreme Skate Adventure. Tarzan, Jane, Turk, Tantor, (laughs) okay, that's your Tarzan selection, Buzz, Woody, Jesse, the evil Emperor Zerg, Simba, Nala, Rafiki, a bit Rafiki rips, right, Pumba is on a skateboard and then Timon is skating on Pumba. It's like a, a oh. skating totem pole. Like when Pumba does flips on the board, Timon does a little flip on top of Pumba. Oh. That's delightful. And like Tony Hawk, it had a soundtrack of alternative hits, uh, including songs by Basement Jacks, Simple Plan, Smash Mouth, and Real Big Fish. We have got to get this on an emulator, Sam. I need to play this game. I've already found the, uh, the soundtrack on Spotify, yes. <laughs> yes. so we can share that out. <laughs> a 
couple of other things I have to mention. So in addition to the Disney characters, you can play as 10 real-life children selected through a nationwide search for America's best young skaters. Okay. okay, So it's actual kids who exist can skate through Tarzan's jungle. And there's also a city, just a normal human city called Hollywood, where you can skate around as these kids. And there's a mission where you have to deliver McDonald's food to the residents. So there's a level, the mission on this game where you've got to take one of those real McDonald's. life kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a real life kid has to take a McDonald's apple pie and deliver it to like a crusty old sea captain. <laughs> That is bizarre. Absolutely deranged. You know Vice somewhere has done a Where Are These Children Now? Like, oh, yeah. Vice have definitely done that article somewhere. <laughs> Still, the, the work for Uber Eats now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, that's enough. Who knew? Considering no one really talks about this film anymore, again, apart from Emily, <laughs> who knew there was this much of a lasting legacy for Tarzan? Incredible stuff. And that is it for this week's class. Emily, have you enjoyed your time in the hallowed halls of Disneyversity? Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Thank you. It's been fun. Thank you, Holmes, for stopping by as agreed. <laughs> uh, lovely to have uh, That was in his contract. Ben made sure. It was. Uh, and so where can people find you online? Where can people listen to other stuff that you're on and read your work? So Twitter's probably where I share most of my stuff, which is at Emily V. Murray of Oak. Who knows what's going to happen to that with Elon Musk in control. But uh, I pop up a lot on Five Live, BBC Scotland, like all sorts of BBC channels. I do the Five Live thing with Rihanna. So you can hear us both talking about movies. And I have my own podcast as well, which is very different to this podcast. It's Christopher Nolan centric. I don't know if Christopher Nolan ever is going to do a Disney film. You know, you just never know with him, to be honest. Can you talk about all the spin-off cartoons <laughs> and video games that they did? Yeah. Like the Inception theme park rides and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, who knows what's going to be for Oppenheimer, just a real bomb, maybe. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, yeah, so I run that as well. And oh, I forgot my main job, which is, yeah, it's because it's so new. I've only been in this job for like three weeks, so I keep forgetting. But yeah, Entertainment Editor for Games Radar Online, which is home to Total Film and SFX magazines. So I manage all that. But yeah, just writing a lot about all sorts. Sometimes I interview Disney legends. I too interviewed Alan Menken. I know Sam, oh, you haven't. Sam in the interviewed Alan Menken club. I don't know who our next guest is going to be. Can it be someone who hasn't interviewed Alan Menken or Alan Menken? <laughs> Those are the only two acceptable. Hopefully the latter, probably preferable. He was playing the piano for me during my interview, which was like the best way. <laughs> I just it was for Disenchanted as well which is another film I sort of defend a lot of people didn't like Disenchanted I liked it Enchanted was big for me growing up but yeah sometimes yes. I interview Disney people so which is fun to sort of like nostalgic childhood thing yeah so do go and find Emily's other stuff online uh, both written and broadcast tons of stuff out there and join us again for our next seminar the final entry in the Disney Renaissance era as we throw it back to the first five features and remix an all-time Disney classic, Infantasia 2000. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review or a star rating, it's lovely to hear feedback about the show. Please do tell us what you think if you're listening to these episodes. And if you do that, we'll invite you to the grand opening of our Tarzan log sliding roller coaster. You'll be first on the ride, maybe testing it out for safety. We'll make you sign an NDA. It's all good. But for now, it's goodbye from Sam. 
Goodbye. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> that was me, Tarzan, yelling off into the distance. Uh, okay, I like it. I like it. Uh, it's goodbye from Emily. Uh, goodbye, and I'll go out with a hullabaloo for Jane. There we go. <laughs> and it's goodbye from Holmes. Oh, he actually woke up when he said that. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Holmes. Bye, Holmes. And it's goodbye from me. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Thank you.